What's up, Henry? What up, man? How you doing? It keeps getting colder. <laughs> <laughs> I did not sign up for this. <laughs> I know. Fall, fall is gone. Yeah, California is supposed to be between like 84 and 62. <laughs> that was so cool. You used the global temperature average into your example in your video. Yeah, thank you so much for I should pay you uh, 100 bucks for every view and like I think, I'm like, I think I might be like a, a million dollars in debt at this point. I would be a billion dollars in debt if that was the case. <laughs> um, Jeff, I mean, not Jeff, Steve messaged me um, a few minutes ago. He said he's not feeling too well. Uh, oh. So he, he might, I, I think his idea is he might miss today's meeting. Oh, okay. But I spoke with him for about two hours last night. Oh, okay. um, just to kind of catch up on, he seems pretty determined to go into industry, <laughs> more determined than I've, I've heard him ever uh, articulate. Yep. I'm glad he shared that with you. He shared that the last time we spoke, he, um, he said the same thing and I understand it, which is, um, yeah, I, I, I get that. Um, I think that the, what's really cool about this project is that he is still super interested in it. It shows the crossover, right? <laughs> yeah. The the structure of this project, uh, in terms of what we're doing on a daily basis, is like the skills that we're building is, is very much are very much aligned with the skills of an academic lifestyle. It's one of the things that um, I think is uh, necessary, but not taught very well. The ability to write, the ability to manage large projects, the ability to do research on your own and to learn material. And those are all things that I designed when, when I was thinking about those things, when I first met Steve, he said, I'm really interested, you know, he had communicated his interest in teaching. One uh, bit of pain that I heard, I would, I wonder what you heard, um, was that the thought of having to plan years in advance was really difficult for him, like emotionally overwhelming. Did he share such a thing? Yeah. Yeah. The first thing he went to was uh, he wants to have a, he wants to kind of jumpstart his career so that he can support himself and his family. And I, I totally understand where he's coming from. Just last night, my mom was saying to me, and she repeats this message every week that uh, as soon as I start working, she can stop working at the post office. <laughs> right. And that's, you know, I, I carry that with me for sure, for sure, for sure. So I get that um, towards the, end of that conversation I was trying to help him imagine a scenario um, which is difficult to do because ultimately Steve and I have no idea what it's like to be in grad school besides the fact that it is more self-directed and self-regulated um, but I was you know trying to help him while helping myself imagine what if there was a case where our income or our take-home income would be the same and the hours spent, right, the clock-in hours at a company was the same as the hours spent working towards our PhD and finishing those courses, right? Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a work in progress for myself as well. How did, how did he, when, when you were speaking about that, how was he thinking? Um, he seemed pretty set. I, I let him speak for most of the two hours because I, I wanted to hear, you know, where he's coming from. Um, so most of the notes were similar to when he, when he, when, when we've conversed about this idea, but he, he said that 
you know, ever since quite early on in Foothill, he, he was interested in teaching, like becoming a teacher. Um, but I think as the, since he's going deeper in that research, uh, the thought of spending eight years in his, in his undergrad and then another seven um, is, uh, yeah, <laughs> hard thought. That's super brutal. That those that here's structural inequity, right? Like, imagine if I had met him when he was a first year. Imagine if I if, if instead of his first year at Davis, I he had his first year at Foothill, right? Like that. That's the type of those are the type of policy problem like that. So in any case, I'm super happy for him because that's a really powerful, if, if it's the case that he's feeling excited about that, that's a super powerful place for him to be because a lot, like the decision itself is like over 50% of the battle, right? Mm -hmm. um, the thing I was trying to say to him was like, I, I, I would hope that we can, I think some of the challenges associated with navigating the academic space and then also some of the real, like what you were just saying, in your situation, right? Um, you know, I, I, one of the questions that I would ask about your mind, not, we don't have to discuss this right now uh, via live stream, but he's like, what, what, what the income, what the minimum income that she earns is necessary. And then what's, what strategies are available is exactly what you're saying to be able to match that income using certain, you know, finding ways to do that within the context of um, earning a degree, right? Mm -hmm. And I, and I think it's possible. I mean, I think, you know, uh, regardless of whether or not Cal Newport has done some really good work, regardless of whether or not I would, if, if I was, if I was conscious at that age, if I would have followed the same path as he followed and written the same stuff is a different question. Right. Mm -hmm. But, and then like, there's, there are people that write books at the age of 20. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think that's one thing that I just, you know, that as I was talking, listening and, and speaking with him, that, regardless of where he goes like i think it would be nice if he if he had if he kept those options open to himself right um yeah i i yeah yes i was totally you know encouraging him not to close any doors right because i understand keeping that door open for sure expends some energy and some resources and thinking about well you know, like, what if I invested some time in interviewing grad students and figuring out what a day in the life of a grad student really is, right? What if I attended a workshop on getting into grad school? Like, yeah, for sure, that that requires some investment, but that's a really important door <laughs> to keep open. Like, if it had it not been for you, Jeff, I wouldn't have gone to so many of these grad school things over the last two years and I wouldn't my network wouldn't be what it is today um, it was amazing how quickly Catherine Lee recognized what you were doing <laughs> in terms of like helping us set a foundation she was like oh yeah he is like helping you build momentum so that when you do go to grad school you understand what deep reading is and writing and all this <laughs> That's exactly like and specifically you know the part of this this work together um it, it, what's really cool it actually goes to the hypothesis that you said and the same thing that we reflected in that email and that i've got been told multiple times over the years which is that learning how to learn learn is universal right and so one of the things that i thought was really interesting when i was speaking with steve was 
like in my mind, I, was, I had, when he said that, I was like, oh, maybe, maybe I've been pushing too hard for him to be involved in the learning code, right? Because I, I, I've been thinking to myself, like so much of the work that we're doing in the back end, not the deliverables, but like how, the, how we're constructing this project is focused on, on building academic skills, right? Like I don't think, so one of the things he said he was interested in data analysis and given the type of jobs that he was talking about, I highly doubt that the managers at those companies that are gonna be on his hiring committee and the people that are gonna be writing his evaluations will have any interest in knowing about his writing. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't think he's going to get paid more in his job. He might have other income that comes from other projects, right? If you were to do that. Um, whereas if in the, certainly in the academic, like in the training for a PhD or the finishing a master's or any of that stuff, like the skills that we're developing are directly transferable to those, um, those milestones. And then also when teaching, writing curriculum, there's so much intellectual work that goes into the curriculum development cycle. Um, and it's not the case that we get paid. I don't get paid more for the curriculum that I design, right? But I'm way more effective in my job when I do it well, right? So in terms of like the, the satisfaction, or I, guess, I don't know if it's satisfaction, but like the knowledge of being able to be good at what I do, like those skills are directly transferable, not secondary too, right? Um, and so I had worried when he was talking, I was like, oh no, like maybe I'd pushed you hard, right? Because it seemed like um, there, he, he, he had a feeling very strong, like if he, if he went for that industry job, he, his anxiety level would decrease significantly and it would allow him to accomplish some, some shorter term goals and then also you know, push off the longer term thinking until later. And so I remember th I asked him, I was like, oh, does that, you know, perhaps maybe that means that you, you're not interested in the learning code. And I didn't even finish the, the sentence. He's like, no, 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 I still want to do it. And I thought to myself, like, holy shit, right? Mm -hmm. Like that, that's an indication of the, the, the deliverables that we're thinking about producing transfer beyond major degree job title and i mean it just it goes to your it goes to the point that you were trying to make years ago right which is like the best thing your the students are going to get out of your classes jeff are not <laughs> lessons on, on on column vectors right yeah i mean i i yes at the same time, I will say those do end up coming up quite often if you're, you know, continue studying STEM and then work in STEM. So the more robust concept images you have on column vectors, the better it will serve you. Like your, your ROI is going to be greater. Um, yeah, but I guess, I guess in the ignition phase, like the, if, if you're post-ignition, if you've already ignited that passion for STEM knowledge, and you're thinking, and like a student already has the, the idea that they want to learn how to model in linear algebra, then all of that content comes in, right? But in the pre-ignition phase, when students are still figuring out what they want to do, it's actually way more powerful to give the, like, this, I think this is one of the points that you've made and that I've heard quite deeply, right? It's so much more powerful to be able to give these, these cognitive thinking skills because you can, like, in, in Steve's case, if he's thinking about going on to, uh, to you know, data analytics, he can lever. He could teach himself anything he wants to know in that field using these mechanisms, right? It, it's not, it's not path dependent, right? Whereas, like, you know, I, depending on what type of data analysis you use, column vectors may be 
re relevant, right? But they may not. Like, well, it could be the case that it has nothing to do with that, right? And so I, I think that's one of the, the kind of exciting, you know, one of the major questions that we've asked ourselves all the time is, is this, we're making a bet, right? Like, is this even, is this valuable? And that, that was a, that, that listening to what he had to say was like, whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So te can you, can you kind of, I don't know if it's, it's weird to debrief on a live live stream because I'd rather have him here to be able to talk about him. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we'll save that for when he can join us. But, but I've heard him say um, one thing that stuck out. He, he, he repeated a few times that he feels that he is a simple man so that if he can, you know, earn a good living wage doing whatever it is that he needs to do and, and be able to have his own place and find a partner and support his family. Even if the job were to suck a lot, he said that he's okay with it. And, and I, and I totally get that. Right. I mean, my, what, after high school, that was my venture, right? Let, let's try things and work in different spaces because um, one, I didn't really see the value of education, right? It's hard to see the value of math when you're being taught and test on arithmetic, <laughs> right? Like, um, so I, I completely was able to empathize with where he was coming from. But uh, yeah, I think we should continue that conversation. Yeah. yeah. Because, I mean, you recognize this, Jeff, vast majority of your students also want to work in industry, right? So, um, yeah, like Balaram is the exception in terms of like going into research and academia. Yeah, I mean, it shows you the, I mean, I think so much of this has to do with life circumstances. It's one of the things that I think the older we get, so this, this is the comment that I'm about to make is like a 10,000 foot view. Mm -hmm. um, the structure of college education. So I've never read, I don't know if you've heard of revisionist history. Um, Howard Zinn was an example of this. So, so much of history is written by the people that uh, are conquerors. So like a historical perspective on like native tribes come from like the colonization that like took over the tribe. And they're like, oh, these, the savages lived, you know, it's like just horrible. But there's this uh, approach in history where they actually re- rewrite the historical framework from the perspective of the colonized rather than the colonizer. And they try to like contextualize the events from the perspective of local communities, not from the perspective of, of uh, people that colonized it, right? And what ends up happening in those situations is that the, um, the historical framework, it, it shifts, like the, the entire uh, mechanism shifts there, right? And I think um, we we're just talking about Balaram, right? So one of the things that I think is really interesting in education is that we, right now, the paradigm of education is really stuck in, I would call like a 17th century or 18th century mindset, which is it highly celebrates um, very privileged individuals that have un- common access to information in uncommon ways. So like one of the, um, so the dominant narrative in mathematics is that people that are good at math are, are some geniuses, but I, I would like to see a revisionist history analyzing the ways that Newton, Riemann, um, von Neumann, these major figures were privileged in their life in a way that was very, very uncommon for other people. 
And the reason that I think this is super important is because the entire systems that we have in society kind of assume that privilege and celebrate it within the structure of education. And I think Steve, this, this story that we see playing out in Steve's life is a story that plays out in so many people's lives, which is there are, there's kind of two lives happening simultaneously for Steve, right? There's his physical life that's based on his physical age and all of the identity pieces that come along with that in our society, right? So there's an assumption that at, by the age of 30, you know, these, these are what I would call dominant narratives, right? By the age of 30, uh, uh, start a family. By the age of 35, you blah, 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 by the, right? I don't necessarily agree with all of those things. I don't think that, that, that those assumptions necessarily have to be true. But what I do think is interesting is that, you know, here's a person that's trying to navigate that, that life and then simultaneously trying to navigate a life in academia and the stage of his life in academia is not aligned with the dominant narrative of the stage of his physical life. And the, one of the reasons that I see that is because the assumptions of an academic life are so tied into privilege that, that, that it actually takes a ton of counter pressure to overcome the privilege barriers to be able to engage in that space, right? And, you know, th this is, um, one way that this shows up is in the um, the structure of PhD education and undergraduate education. Like we haven't really changed. PhDs didn't even exist until like, I think it was like the 1960s, maybe. I forget when the first PhD was, but it was not, it was in the 1900s for sure, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if one of the things that's really kind of funny is if you look at the first PhDs, the structure, like when I read about the first PhDs, it was like literally like a very small number of people at one institution that studied now stuff that people study in the fourth year of their undergraduate. Right? Wow. Yeah. And so, you know, and then, and then the, the funny thing is as time has gone on, the number of PhD has gone up. So the number, the amount of research that is available to somebody, like when you start your PhD, the amount of research and work that is going to, that has been done in computer science, for you versus the amount of somebody that started a PhD in computer science in the 1950s is like lifetimes worth of study. Like you could spend like eight hours a day, five days a week, you could spend multiple lifetimes trying to read all the material out there and you would never finish it. Another way to say that is, and that's because, you know, computers didn't exist until the 1950s. So you literally had 70 years of, of academic work, but you've had 70 years of academic work with, hundreds of thousands of people doing it, right? And so now, now, if you look at a PhD candidate that enters in the 2020 versus a PhD candidate that entered computer science in 1960, the amount of information that the PhD candidate in 1960 has to process versus the amount of information that the PhD candidate in, in 2020 has to process, they're not even on the same level of, they're orders of magnitude different, right? but the structure of the degree hasn't changed much. And so there's no real systemic transformation of the, of the dominant paradigm, which is if we're serious about, like it, it, we really have to transform the entire educational system so that somebody in today's world actually has enough time to marinate on the idea. And this is, this is why you know, some scholars will actually like challenge the idea that PhDs should launch, you know, the, the standard, the standard claim is like, okay, if you 18 years old, you finish high school, 
four years for college. There's the dominant narrative. I completely disagree with it, right? Four years for undergraduate, five years for a graduate school. But personally, one of the things that I would like to see, you know, five or six years in undergraduate or change the structure of high school education so that the last two years you can start to like, you actually get to start to specialize a little bit, right? And that, that undergrad is funded and then PhD process, instead of having to, you know, figure out everything that you want to do pr prior to committing to the PhD process and then like just allow those structures to change a little bit to reflect the, the, the amazing nature of the academic work that's been produced in the last 60 to 70 years, right? But in order for that change to happen, the scholars that control this process have to be humble enough to recognize that just because they went through emotional pain doesn't make them special in such a way that their students should have to survive the same thing, right? have to be conscious of that of that shift and, and that's one of the reasons that I think it's one of the gifts that I want to give you and if, if Steve had or still wants to um, get, uh, get involved with education the, the one of the forums that I want to cultivate in this space is really a, 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 a mechanism by which as you navigate those spaces you become very educated, quite well educated on the aspects of the teaching job directly related to um, academic systems based on the knowledge in that field. Because in the absence of this type of forum, the current systems have no, no mechanisms that are going to be offered to you in that space. Um, you know, but that, that's a much larger conversation about the structure of, of higher education, right? But it is it is interesting because that theme is playing out live in this small group that we have. That that challenge that, you know, and, and Steve is is um, making a decision based on that. And I fully respect that decision and I'm going to do everything that I can to support it. But even still, imagine imagine a system where someone like Steve has the type of is able to navigate those pressures while keeping alive, you know, the, those larger questions that he had previously, right? And that, that would be a student-centered system. Um, but, you know, we're not, I know, I know the argument, you know, there's limited resources, et cetera, et cetera, but, you know, it just, there's a lot to be said about, you know, the type of privileges that are baked into intellectual thought systemically, right? And the, the type of burden those privileges put on to somebody that has the audacity to believe that they might want to go into that, right? Yeah. One um, minor reflection is when Steve says that he is happy to get a well-earning job as soon as he can so he can become independent, he is comparing his... Uh, work experiences that you know the, the experiences that he's had at Amazon or in restaurants to that idea of, of working as a professional mathematician in industry and you know given my kind of more diverse experiences in different industries that is not a like that comparison is a troublesome comparison because from a time scale to a just what type of work that he's going to be doing as a mathematician um, 
is very different than the work that he's experienced, right? Because those weren't like full-on apprenticeships. Those were just like, like just physical labor, right? Talk in, talk out. Yeah. Those are, those are uh, glass ceilings, right? Like you, I mean, if you're packing Amazon boxes, like, of course you can, you can manipulate that space to be able to like rise up. I think this is one of the reasons that the path that you're taking, there's so much, um, you're, you're like, I, I remember, at one, I don't know if I've told you the story about talking with my aunt who used to be married. He, she was married to a famous uh, bird, started, somebody that studied bird at UT Austin. Uh, got his PhD, I think from Berkeley. Anyways, at the end of my PhD, I, I was kind of disheartened. And I remember thinking like, I shouldn't have my PhD at 28. Like, this is stupid. Like so much of my, I felt like, when I got into the PhD, the end of my PhD, and I was writing my thesis, I felt like they put a baby in the driver's seat of Ferrari and then put a brick on the gas pedal, right? Like, so I have this degree that is a Ferrari and I'm like a, a baby because I just, I didn't have the world experience to be able to fully grasp the import of what I was doing, right? Like just like the, the entire structures there. I, I, I mean, I, I had built it, I had built the consciousness, but I, and I remember saying like, it's so stupid that we structure this education system this way. It would have been so much better if I could have had an apprenticeship in the fields that I was doing it as I was going up so that by the time I dropped in my PhD process, I had this, this much, much larger view, even if that extended the degree for a few years. And then she says like, what the, what the fuck are you talking about? You're done. And, I, and it, it just like, it took me off guard because what she was saying was, yeah, that's true, it, it, you know, in terms of the import, but in terms of the structure of, of your life, like, and, and, then, and then immediately she said, like, do you know that your, her daughter's husband has two kids, they're like five, they were at, like, they were younger at that point, but he was trying to finish his degree as a dad. And that's, you know, and that's one of the things like, to me, I feel like we could do so much better to be able to address that because one of the benefits that you're going to bring to your education is exactly the paradigm that you just said out loud. Like that's such an asset that you have, Henry, because it means like you're, you're able to draw when you're making that comparison you're able to make the connection between the life that you've lived outside of academia and what that life is like and what it means, right? And so you know, mature, it reminds me of Angela Duckworth. She, it's a little bit different in that sense, but she talks about how she lived outside of academia and then came back. Robin D'Angelo is like this, the woman that wrote White Fragility. Yep, yep. She's a world famous uh, scholar now, but she worked, she didn't work in she worked outside of that field. Well, I guess it's in a tangential field, but she was not an academic for like 15 years. Uh, Dan Mayer reminds me of this. DYD Dan, right? He, he, he taught in, um, in middle school, I think. And then after a few, like after many years teaching, that's when he went back in and thought like, okay, I, I really want to understand that, right? But anyways, how, how are you doing, Henry? I'm doing well. Uh, 
trying to ramp up for my finals. Um, and it's hard because all of those classes have pretty hard assignments every week. So, but keeping in the background that there's going to be a final exam at the end of it. So um, just trying to learn as much as I can as I'm going through those assignments. You, are, you, uh, are you getting some time for self-care? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, the drama with property management never ends. So it's uh, someday I should probably write about that stuff because there's a lot. It's so complex. <laughs> Just mm. Is there any progress on that? Is there any progress on that? where I love to turn off the live stream. <laughs> yeah. Um, not too much, but but I think, you know, I, I should definitely write on it so that I just can clear my head of that stuff because it just acts as a cloud sometimes. Um, yeah. One question, we haven't gone into a ton of depth in this individual circumstances. I know uh, I'm familiar with um, the idea that some of the tenants that you have provide a unique opportunity for growth. <laughs> um, one question that I had um, when reflecting on your circumstances, I think I, I don't fully understand those, but I remember um, when I was going through my uh, degree, a question that I asked myself pretty often is if I thought about this degree, not, on a day-to-day -day basis, but on a year-to-year -year basis, are there any projects I could do in my personal life that would make next year slightly easier than this year? In other words, could I, could I like eliminate, so like one of the ones that was super painful in my case was eliminating martial arts. That, that took a ton of uh, um, growth, I suppose. But what ended up happening is, I mean, that's a choice. That's not really a life circumstance, but it is, it was something that I would say that I was addicted to, right? Like I was doing that on a daily basis. Um, and that took like two or three years to do, like from the time that it first entered my mind to the time that I was no longer going to the mat on a daily basis. Um, and so that was a, that was a question that like, you know, it sounds like when you speak about property management, that that's a daily commitment in the structure that it is now, right? With the particular circumstances. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, I was wondering, like, I, you know, it, it also sounds like you, you, you are working hard to get, make progress on that. And I always wonder, like, how's that progress going? Is, do you feel that there's any uh, light at the end of the tunnel? <laughs> yes, slow progress. So I'm like always getting consulting with legal friends and um, some things can't be, I guess, changed though. For example, we have one tenant who's been with us for almost 10 years. Yeah, more than 10 years. Um, he used to be a chef of a restaurant that my mom co-owned. Um, and he kind of like took care of me because my, my parents weren't around very much when I was like younger. But yeah, just like, I guess, personality or characteristic problems, like he's like angry all the time. And sometimes like, I feel like it's not a safe space, you know, to like um, even live here at times. 
and that that's kind of hard to just be around that it's a barrier to learning right yeah but the, there's this book on meditation that's uh, I forget the name. I think it's called Real Happiness. It's over there in my bed, but it, it it speaks about this and it has some drills, like some breathing drills and some just concentration drills. And that's been helping. <laughs> but I've also been reflecting on um, what you shared a few meetings ago about how you were quite serious about your grades and your schoolwork since high school. Like that was definitely not me. And I also, I linked that um, story with one of my friends who I took discrete math and linear algebra, discrete math with Charles Wittrich and linear algebra with John Saka at Foothill. And I remember I was around her a lot and I don't remember her studying at all. <laughs> and she was able to do really well. And I, I did another like informal interview of her, but she was like, yeah, I know I didn't really study at all for those classes, but I actually had taken all of that stuff in high school already. <laughs> so, so that that's, you know, part part of our mission at the Learning Code is to kind of uncover some of that, right? Because it really paints a paints an inaccurate picture of how some of these A students get A's. Um, well, that's related to the privilege, right? Or, or the maybe the struggle, right? The they they've gone through that productive. They've been in that productive struggle zone. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah, if you're talking about the individual, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So if we're thinking about the individual learner, yes. I was talking about the system itself, right? Like what, what, if, you're, if you go through that system and, and you're sitting in the class and you're looking at her, at that moment, you're thinking there's a comparison, right? Like why is she able to do so well and she doesn't even look like she's studying? And that's a systemic privilege issue, right? Because her high school, she probably lived in a, in a segregated community where the high school's got local tax revenue right but in terms of the actual individual learner she was doing productive struggle well before she was ever in that class so just that number of hours of productive struggle per lecture you know three years is not equal to one quarter right mm -hmm. which is why our project is so important right because there's so many the vast majority of students if they don't develop consciousness of how learning works they'll never know how learning works <laughs> and they'll just think they can't do it and they'll be stuck in that comparison or just like drop out like my store manager at in and out right yeah yeah um this might be a good time we can transition to uh, the agenda we can take a quick look i'm starting to find it I, for some reason i didn't... Uh, i can drop it in the chat if you give me a moment yeah. i should I should have linked it in the email I sent, um, but I can drop it in the chat. Yeah, I think it has something to do for me because I'm using the San Jose State one, so it has some privacy issues or access issues. Um, I'm excited to try this one thing today. So I've been coaching Balaram on how to uh, <laughs> ask more beautiful questions. Um, and he actually, I got him to record too. And what I was thinking is uh, we can we can actually just like listen to it and then you can respond to his question. Because I think you, you have many students who have a lot of great questions to ask you. Um, and this is, I think maybe one way to like circumvent some of those, you know, like like if, if, this, if your students are gonna upload a question on their own YouTube thing, you can 
yeah, you could probably, I mean, you could probably share that slash like give feedback to that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, as far as turning, as far as getting further away from emails being one-offs. Yeah. The one thing that I, this quarter, this next quarter in winter, I'm going to try Henry, you've inspired this, the work that we're doing together. Like you, when I think about you as uh, I will always say you're a great teacher, right? Teachers inspire change. How many changes have you directly inspired in my life, right? And one of them has been, uh, Derek said, I think you said it to me first, but Derek um, Tang said it in a different way. He was like, why are you, like, you know that YouTube has comments, right? He's <laughs> like, why are you answering questions? Like, I don't understand why you're having people submit questions via paper, but anyways, something that you've been showing me in engaging in YouTube is that I can actually create valuable dialogues in the comments, right? And I, they can be done asynchronously. And so what I thought to myself is like, you could students based on the, what you've been showing me via lived experiences, students can submit their questions to me in the YouTube comments with a link to the timestamp, right? So, or a link to their own video or whatever it is. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I can fully answer those questions in the comment so that, you know, they, they submit a comment with a question in it. I can reply to that comment right under that thing. And then if it, if it, if it's going to be stuff that requires more than just a text reply, mm -hmm. let's say like a video, then I link the URL to that video in that comment. Right. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, like over the years, what I've been super excited about one thing that I has, has really bothered me at Foothill is that I see so much talent that comes through our, that, that I've seen in my own classes. You're an example of that. I, you know, luckily we still have a working relationship that has gone far beyond the work that we did in our classes. But like, I don't have that with a lot of my students. And I, it always has bothered me because it means that my current generation of students is completely blind to years, you know, it's soon to be decades of work that I've done. And these students go on to do amazing things. And I always think to myself like, what a, what a sad scenario, right? Like the current generation of students I have has no idea of all the successes in the, but this, the, some of the structures that we're setting up in the learning code allow for intergenerational conversation, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And that, and, and, and not only intergenerational conversation, asynchronous energy so it's not just me talking with one person one off and then that cap that's like gone in the ether right <laughs> like i could, we can actually leverage that to guide the next generation and say like you know how amazing would it be because a lot of young students that I'm, when i'm working with they have no idea what it's going to look like in 10 years but instead of me giving that like when i say it they're like oh yeah this fucking old guy doesn't know right but if somebody that was a student says it to them they're like oh my god <laughs> Yeah, and so like I, what you're saying, I, I, you, you have coached me through that vision. I mean, I, I kind of, I had some concept of that idea, like in terms of the problem, but in terms, I knew the problem existed, but I had no like concrete vision for the solution to that problem. And you've been, I think, my my greatest teacher, uh, or at least the the person that has sponsored has gotten through the thickness of this skull with the deepest uh, penetration. But you know, one of the things that's really powerful is you know, your coaching combined with the odd and end comments of many, many other students together has like really penetrated. And that's, I'm so excited to try that in winter. That's why you saw that community challenge, right? Like that, 
that's really an invitation for multiple generations of people that watch those videos to be able to interact and engage together. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, we're stumbling upon this the solution. Um, it's far from ideal at the moment, but it is something because, you know, uh, remember when you were recording both of your sections, the, the semester I, I wasn't, yeah, the section I was recording you, you were also recording your evening section. And then in one of our meetings, you're like, wait a minute, I said something really, really beautiful in the evening section that I didn't do it for that class. And you're like, but that wasn't on film. And just a few meetings ago, I was like, Jeff, your response to the agenda item is literally could be a chapter in a book, right? So if we think of like work and we think of documentation and, and for the purpose of sharing and empowering other students, we're writing a lot, you know? And if we can get these, like our initial proposal of the grant, we said we're going to do interviews, right? But there's an issue with interviews because if, even if the interview is like 30 minutes, um, it's hard to convince students to watch a 30 minute interview, even if the other student on the other side looks like them and, and shares a bit of their story. But now if we can, if we can guide coach, uh, if we can coach students to ask meaningful questions that are related to their purpose and vision and future and, and you know, get our responses in, you know, more succinct ways, and we can have a library of two to five minute videos, those will for sure get watched. Like. I've, I've seen it done in sports, in gaming, in every sector uh, possibly imagined, right? So, so we can try that today. <laughs> um, awesome. Okay. Henry, you're a visionary, my friend. You're a vision. You, yeah, I, I don't know how else to say it. You're a visionary. You have vision. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Um, you do too. <laughs> and your, your vision. Thank you for sharing your vision with me. Um, so what I think we can do first is we can play uh, a minute and a half of Balaram's first question. And then I, I did some thinking on this and I think it's a nice primer for you to actually highlight the learning needs hierarchy for the scope for students. So I think this will be fun <laughs> uh, because I, I, hear, I hear your learning needs hierarchy as, as, a, as a beautiful answer for his question. So let me, I already queued this up so I just have to share. Give me one moment. Oh, I have to share sound. Share computer sound. Okay. So his question is here. Um, <laughs> that guy, that, that kid's such a baller. He's so productive. Oh my God. Um, okay. I'm going to play. If you don't hear anything, just speak up. Okay. Hey, Jeff. What's up? Um, I'm Baller. I'm if you remember from. I remember like, you for sure, two years ago at Florida College. Um, something that's always stuck with me about you as a, as a teacher was how much you respected learning and how much you cared about learning, like the, the process of learning, rather than the material that you were teaching or you know, the school, the grade, etc. It was always about the learning and how to develop strategies to study and learn. And that's something that just always stuck with me. And I just wanted to share that before I dive into my questions. Uh, my first question is related to learning. And it's a little more meta, I guess. But it's about finding a purpose in what we learn rather than in learning itself. Finding a purpose in the knowledge. And this is something that either you define yourself like this is a required class, as a prereq. You have those kinds of 
purposes and goals. But more than that, like normally you will, like when you look think more long-term, career-wise or life-wise in terms of meaning, um, sometimes you have, you have some kind of purpose, a deeper purpose in mind. And sometimes you just don't. And I'm not really sure how that happened, but I wanted to hear your thoughts on how exactly that purpose can be developed and strategies to develop that. Because I feel like having a purpose is so important to developing motivation and inspiration to to learn, um, to learn with a lot of grit in the class. So I'd really love to hear your thoughts on, on this uh, on this topic. Okay, great. Um, real quick, before I forget, Jeff is the I've created a master index of the videos. Wow. So, <laughs> for example since that one um, segment, for example, the academic arms race, right? In here, you can literally type arms race. And I've also changed the actual YouTube titles of our full meeting into some key topics that I that stuck mm -hmm. out to me. But then um, if I do another search, okay, here. So here we have academic arms race. So if you have a student that you feel like might benefit from that, you can go into this master Google doc and just search up the, the keywords. I know it's going to get a little bit populated as time goes on, but we'll find a solution when that time comes. Awesome. This is uh, this is a great uh, draft. Zero. This is, yeah. This is so cool. And then it'll be there. Right. And then like, for example, I think in that same meeting, we had the Donahue act. See Donahue act those around 46 minutes. And then all you have to do is, is scroll up and then here's the full meeting link. Um, um. <laughs> okay, so I think this is, uh, I know you have a lot to say to Balaram's question. Um, and I, I might play one minute of this before you respond. So his overall I, question is, how, how might we derive more purpose in our learning, specifically in the courses that we're having to learn for? Um, so I'm going to play this, okay, Jeff? Just a minute. <laughs> Generally, when I work, I try to go this way. And for our audio listeners, the way that he is going is from bottom up. And the bottom is content theory, component skills. And of course, this is his learning needs hierarchy. And then the next tier would be strategic deep learning skills. The tier above that is motivation and goals. And the top tier on the hierarchy is belief and hope. One of the very sad things about that, though, is that I lose efficacy for a whole subset of my students. By the end of the quarter, people go away. And this makes me sad. It makes my heart cry, right? Because they're paying me. They're literally, every student that's in my uh, class at census date pays for the food of my family and children, right? And when they go away, it means they've paid my bills, and yet I haven't served them in some way. In my early days, I used to think, um, what's wrong? What, what went on for that student that went wrong? And what I have learned is that that type of deficit thinking actually makes uh, me less effective in my work. When I think about myself, the moment I think that way, I lose the capacity to change the systems in my classes to serve those students. The project that I'm about to present to you is a different paradigm in serving students, which is, instead of thinking when those students went away, what was wrong for them, I think, when those students went away, what did I do in my classes 
that did not address some of the fundamental needs in the higher orders. Okay, the reason I, I, I thought that this is a beautiful segue to highlighting the learning needs hierarchy, Jeff, is even though you're speaking to a room full of educators, community college educators, um, at the moment, I think it is smart in terms of system navigation for students, um, the, our audiences that are students, to, to look at this hierarchy in a more critical way. Because what I hear is, and what I'm experiencing right now in, in my semester is, if I just get the grade, if I just am trying to do the minimum amount of work possible to get the grades and pass or whatever that conversion is, I won't actually necessarily address strategic deep learning skills, my motivation and goals and getting those grades and my belief and hope about that subject and that content. So that's why I thought it, it relates, <laughs> but yeah. Uh, uh, should I sort of uh, kind of coach me here? Am I? Am I? Um, I think if you are able to respond a bit to Balaram's question, which is, you know, how do we get more purpose out of our learning in our courses? Um, what are some strategies you used? Yeah, the first thing that I would want to do is say, of course, I remember you, Balaram, <laughs> and then I would want to like have a conversation with him a little bit, just to um, active listen. I, I, I really like to, when, when, I, when I'm listening to students' question, I like to repeat back what I heard so that they can correct it. So in this case, I would say, what I think I heard was that you are at a stage in your education ballroom where you are actively and critically reflecting on the purpose that you have as a way to build motivation in your courses. And you're wondering about the mechanisms that you can use to be able to build that purpose or build that meaning as you navigate the courses. And then I would probably follow up with a question, something like, do, do, do you feel alone on that? Do you feel like there's, and you know, let him, like how, how, how are you feeling in terms of the support networks at school? Given that I can't have a conversation with him, this is asynchronous, uh, it's such a pleasure to be in contact. Um, I guess one of the first thing that pops up, if I can come back to the hierarchy later um, and then just kind of stay base level, so I would, uh, the first thing that I would say to Balaram, and I think he's already passed this, but I would actually break that discussion in two parts. The first part would be the strategic and the second part would be the deep. I have a feeling that Balaram is already past the strategic portion of this conversation and that we should really jump into the deep. But because I'm not actually sitting live in front of him and because we may have viewers that are uh, at different stages in their development of academic competencies, I might as well just give uh, lip service to the strategic part. One of the first things that I like to say is I like to help students become strategic deep learners. And there's a reason why I put strategic first. I think it's very, very hard to think about long-term purpose if there's no food on the table, right? Or if you don't have uh, shelter or if you don't have um, light in your home. And another way to say that is, um, there's a difference between engineers and mathematicians, right? Mathematicians create theory for the love of creating theory where engineers are constrained by, I don't know, money, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and in learning, I think that there, there is a lot of deep um, theoretical or at least 
um, deep thinking that we can do, meditation on purpose and values that I actually believe is quite important. And it's really, really important in the long run. But I always like to say that um, I would encourage my students to work to a place where they've earned that type of meditation. So in particular, I would say that one of the first steps is to create skills that allow you to navigate the system in the ways that you want to navigate it. So that on a daily basis, you're not worried about being able to survive a particular class or being able to get through a particular test. Of course, those things are always going to consume portions of our mental bandwidth. But I think the first thing that I would say in developing purpose is to develop strategic habits that allow you to be effective in the way that allow us, that allow me, you, anybody to be effective in the ways that we want to be effective in our work. Now, I don't, just like in the learning hierarchies, I actually say explicitly in that talk, and I would say today, these are, these are nonlinear systems, right? <laughs> you know, it's, it's not the case that like, I, you know, I'm going to develop strategic habits and never think about purpose. And then once that's done, I'm going to transition to the purpose and never think about, like, they're, they're, they're a revolving system. They're like the plan, act, and reflect cycle, right? Like, on some parts of the day, I think about strategic habits. On other parts of the same day, I think about purpose. And sometimes they're in direct conflict. Sometimes they're together. But I think in the early stages of developing competencies, there are a lot of reasons why I think it's really powerful and actually liberating um, to focus on the lower levels of the hierarchy because the upper levels I often find require many, many years of meditation. And it's hard to make space for those years of meditation if, if I am constantly feeling that I'm a fighting for survival, right? That, I, that I'm constantly along that line where, where I, don't, I don't know if I'm gonna sink or swim, right? Um, whereas if I can create a little bit of mental space for myself every day so that I can thrive in the, in the main categories that I wanna thrive in and then carve out some, some extra space to be able to do that higher level thinking, it, it allow, my feeling is that it allows us to be liberated in a way that, um, that makes that space. So I guess the first thing that I would say to myself, or in this case in Balaram, and I think he's already done this, so I, I might be a little bit redundant, but like, you know, develop a habit of consciously crafting or refining study skills in such a way that they make learning easier as time goes on, right? Um, and then I think that, you know, the, the next thing that I would say is to do the type of reflective thinking that that question, like that that question, in, in order for Balaram to ask that question, he has had to multiple times return over and over and over again to this question of why am I doing this and how does this affect my life and what is the long-term vision there? And I, I think in that, I would call that deep level thinking on values, right? Like really trying to make a connection between the day-to-day -day struggle and a longer term vision. Um, and I think that that's a, a very privileged space to be in. Um, once we're in that space, I think one of the first things that I would do is I would actually write those statements down. So in, this reflects uh, to the recent blog post that I did on um, horizons of focus. Um, I, I tend to believe that one of the best ways to develop that is to have habitual space in which I am returning to those thoughts over and over again and let that space be um, 
both a ritual and then also editable. So um, in my case, I use a value statement that I have on in a Microsoft Office uh, um, document. I look at that like at least once a week as, as a reminder on to to remind myself why am I working so hard? Why am I doing all of this? And then I also set aside time um, habitually at least once a quarter where I do you know a one or two hour edit given all the new information that I have. And so four times a year in January 1st, I usually do a much larger edit that lasts multiple days because it's once, you know, that's like New Year's, New Year's where I kind of like rewrite and think and, and, and I don't rewrite it from scratch, but um, th this covers a few different principles of learning. Um, number one has to do with, I forget the name of this right now. Um, you ever heard that story? This, this book has a lot of information on this. Um, Decisive by Chip Heath and Dan Heath. These are brothers. This is about the science of making decisions. And in this, they tell a story about, I think it was Van Halen that was doing huge rock concerts all over the nation. And their rock concerts required very, very technical um, setups in order to not blow up the stage and kill the performers. And so it, they had like a 400 page contract that they would send to these different venues because they were doing venues in small locations, right? So it's not just San Francisco that's used to dealing with these type of things. They could be going to like Lodi, right? Where, where like, you know, they've never had that type of thing. And so buried in like page 251 on some random page was this clause that says, when, when the band arrives, you should keep a, a plate of M&Ms and they all have to be brown M&Ms. And if you do not have all brown M&Ms, you have to pick out all M&Ms but the brown ones. And if there is a single non-brown, we will forfeit the entire contract. So you could lose tens of thousands of dollars. We could cancel the entire venue. And so the funny thing is Van Halen would then, the moment they arrived, the first thing the band would do would go into the dressing room and check the M&Ms. And if there was a single brown M&M, they would stop everything and check it because they realized that if, if the people putting together the shows didn't read that particular thing and realize the gravity, they were likely to mess up on a bunch of other portions of the contract, which would then put the lives of the performers in, in jeopardy. And so that was a tripwire. They used that brown M&M as a tripwire in order to tell them that they need to make a decision about what they're going to do next. And so I think one of the first things that I would say to Balaram is the habit of, of habitually asking ourselves the question, why am I doing this? And how does this relate to a larger vision of my life? Like scheduling that habit, just like church. This reminds me of church, right? Church on a weekly basis, those devout people that have a faith that go to church on a weekly basis, when Sunday hits, it's as if the, you know, the calendar goes from Saturday to Sunday, they see the brown M&Ms and they realize I need to make a decision and the decision is to go to church. And then all of a sudden when they're in church, They've set aside ritual time to think through what their faith means through whatever lens that they're going to do that. And the same way I think is really important in education, because our academic systems spend very, very little time investing in the individual nature of our students, I think one of the first things that I would say is to create these tripwires, these ritual habits that are, you know, so for me, here's my habit. Once a week, I'm going to read through that value statement and reflect on its meaning. Number two, 
I am constantly reading new information, and that's going to be the second habit that I'll talk about in a second, that guides my thinking and allows me to update that. Number three, once a quarter, usually at the end of the quarter, after I've submitted grades, before I've ever touched work on the next quarter, so I have this little like downtime. So in my vacation time, I dedicate one hour of time, and I, I very much treat it like it's, uh, I don't know, a baptism of a child, or <laughs> like where, where I just... For that hour, the only thing that I'm doing is looking at that document and reflecting on its content and then editing, updating anything that I think needs to be updated in that round. And at the end of the year, similarly, I have that tripwire when January 1st comes around, you know, probably around December 15th, I'm starting to think like, oh, okay, it's that time again. Because those are just temporal markers that allow me to habitually come back to that. So I think that's number one, like, Giving, giving ourselves permission to set that aside and recognize that, that that is a very, very important habit that we can do for ourselves, supported by the concept of decision-making, right? And use time as the, use time mechanisms as the bowl of M&Ms. So for me, my time mechanism is weekly, quarterly, yearly, right? So I'm using those triggers to say like, I need to make a decision on that purpose statement I'm going to mark those in time and then I'm going to go back and return to those. The second thing I would say for me that's super useful in this is the habit of deep reading for the sake of reading. And I've written that blog post on that. I'd like to move that blog post from my personal website over to the learning code website, Henry. I don't know if you're okay with that. I'm okay with it. Um, yeah. So the second thing that I think is really powerful for me is I do a lot of what I call exploratory reading. So, um, Maybe we can, I can move that over sometime soon. Um, basically, one of the things that's interesting about purpose is that I think it's, it's best developed um, or, or values or long-term vision is best developed within a context. And one thing that I recognize is that a lot of the purpose demonstrated or provided by academic content lacks so much context to it because the curriculum is kind of filtered through this, this very, very small bubble of academia that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with our own lived experiences. And so one thing that I feel really, really um, is, is a fundamental mechanism by which I, I develop my own understanding of the world is to seek out uh, um, a relatively constant stream of information in the outside of my academic degree that informs the way that I think about myself or contextualizes the work that I'm doing in a larger framework. Henry, you've seen some of that. I, I, I post a, um, a list of the books that I read in the exploratory level, not the deep level, um, to, in order to expose myself to ideas. And then the other, I, I guess, so that's number one is to set temporal um, decision-making mechanisms where I'm re 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 uh, routinely returning to, or we, you, routinely return to the question of what does purpose mean? Why do I want it? What is my purpose? Edible document that we can upgrade year after year, decade after decade, right? Number two is to create a habit of reading that allows us to expose ourselves to ideas that are well outside the small network of concepts in academia and allows us to contextualize the work that we're doing in larger themes in, in the world around us. Um, and yeah, I, I suppose the third one is to, 
I guess this is a principle, but, but it, it is a habit of thought, I suppose. I would encourage myself, and in this case, Balaram, when thinking about purpose, I, I wouldn't look at it as a destination. I would like my, I would call the current draft, my like, I don't know, second draft. <laughs> like, um, I, th I think that the idea, the reason that it's so powerful for me is that it allows me to make connections between what I do on a daily basis and my understanding of what I want my life to include in the long run, right? And I think in that statement, like I, I recognize that as a human being, I change on a daily basis. And I, I would imagine you too, Balaram, like you're, as you get older, you're gonna, your, your interests are gonna change, your life circumstances are gonna change, what, your interest, what, 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 what you're gonna do on a day-to-day -day basis now is going to be very different on what you're going to do with databases 10 years from now. And so I, I think th that habit of thought, like recognizing purpose is a, is a framework, not necessarily a destination. It's a process. Right. Um, and so I guess that's the, that's those, those are three things that come to mind um, in terms of the framework for the hierarchy of needs. Um, I would call the question that he's asking right now, uh, a question about, um, you know, on the, on the second level, on, if we think about uh, belief and hope, motivation and goals, um, strategies, and then on the bottom level is content. Like Balaram's asking this question about that, that second level. How do, we, how do we create strong narratives for ourselves that can help guide long-term development, right? Um, and I, I, you know, the point of setting aside ritual space is really an invitation to make that a central component of the educational experience. And I think this goes back to some of the comments that we've made with Steve, right? The student makes the school, the school doesn't make the student. When Balaram asked this type of question, he may be able to finish a number of degrees without ever asking this type of question. The challenge in that though, is that when he finishes and then launches, et cetera, at some point he may get to a space where he asks like, what is this all for? And I think that's why it's so important on a day-to-day -day basis to set, set that aside and recognize like a fundamental component of hard work is, is for us to know for each of us individually to understand like, why is this worth, work worth it? Why, did, why is it even worth, why do I exist? Like, <laughs> why do I want to spend all this time doing these random acts? Why do I breathe, right? Um, and so I think from that standpoint, like just the fact that he's carving out space is a huge, huge step in that process, at least it was for me. And, and it, this does relate very much to the science of learning in the sense that there are uh, cognitive science results that say, <laughs> people with really, really high levels of motivation tend to persevere much longer than people that don't know why they're doing it. And then when they run into struggle, they'll tend to back away from that, right? And I think that, that the, for me at least, the stronger, and I would recommend for Balaram, like if you can continue to chew on this problem over years and let your lived experience and then your information collection mechanisms feed into the thoughts that you have about it, 
I would imagine that you can start getting answers for yourself that will help you make the, make the decision to value the work that you're doing at a much different level. And that, and the moment that they're there, it's, it's, uh, for me, that's been a transformational component. It's, yeah. how, how did I, now I want to ask like, what did, what did you hear Balaram? <laughs> <laughs> this is part of the mission to democratize Jeff's influence and wisdom and guidance. So uh, I'm so glad we're trying this. Um, Balaram and for our audience, this is a, this is a blog post that Jeff wrote the URL is here. It's right down your goals on the learning code page. And it has an introduction to the horizons of focus that Jeff is talking about. And then this is the um, deep readings um, systems post on Jeff's <laughs> WordPress page. We'll switch that over. I, I really like the idea that this stuff is dedicated, that the learning code is dedicated to learning and that the, my personal blog will be dedicated to kind of the teaching aspect of it. I, I think that's... And for those who want to um, listen more about his presentation of the learning needs hierarchy, it's electrified the linear systems problem at CMC3 in December 2019 on Jeff Anderson's YouTube page. Yeah, I, I, I will say that like the fun stuff about all of this is that none of a lot of what we're talking about, I, I don't I don't say that this stuff belongs to me, right? I, I, I channel the ideas and I think many of these ideas are, are replicable in, in Balaram's life or in Henry's life or in Jeff's life, right? But the, the processes, the, you know, Balaram said that, like, I, I think the most important piece of, of the becoming a student, for me at least, when I, work, when I coach students, what I really hope for is that they become conscious learners, that they start studying the systems of learning, because I think the moment that they do that, the moment that you or me or any of our, of any of us as humans start to understand how we learn and what we need to learn, then our minds turn into tools that we can decompose any idea in the world and, and capture that idea in our own mind and then leverage it for whatever purpose that we, we want. And that's where, you know, once we have that skill of becoming professional learner, that's where purpose becomes so helpful because I could leverage just like what did what did Spider Man's uncle say? What? Learning is really fun. No, no, what did he say? <laughs> uh, with great power becomes great comes great responsibility, right? Patrick Morris also said said that in the first day of class. <laughs> yeah, I think he did. He say that. Yeah, because that it's really true, right? I could leverage. I could learn how to become a. a uh, fascist dictator. I could do that. I could, I could develop skills to leverage the power of state to target a particular minority in the society and exterminate them. There are people have done that in the lived world. I could also leverage those things to work against climate change. I could leverage my ability to learn to empower other people. Um, to become professional learners. These are, there are so many paths in life. And I think the, the really interesting question comes, why am I doing this? And I think that's where values, if I can be conscious of my values, then I can leverage those values as a way to answer those questions. And I would claim that so often, a lot of the, the, the despair and, and hatred and, and like 
come from people that are, that leverage the concepts of learning that are like actively learning things without connection to moral or ethic compasses, right? They're just, they have this like goal that maybe is associated with psychological needs that were never met when they were kids or, you know, something in their life. And they've never actually consciously thought, why am I doing this? Like, what outcome will this have? And I think this is, you know, I guess the last thing that I would say, and then we'll kind of end it because I think I, we're about to be late, but I personally believe that purpose is most meaningful when it goes to benefit other people. Like at the end of the day, above economic activity, above personal gain, above like ultimately when I think about the value of human life, it, it, it's, it's to benefit our communities and that may be people it may be our environment it may be other living beings but like the for me when i think about value i think a lot about how does my energy contribute to the lives of other people and to helping them minimize suffering suffering and maximize happiness in their life or maximize right and and i think that's one of the things that i look for deeply when i when i'm assessing my own value statement how does and purpose like what what is it that i'm doing and how does that contribute to the lives of other people how does this help other people and i think the 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 closer i can get to answers explicit answers on those things and the more my daily actions align with those explicit answers the more meaningful my life becomes per personally right and so I think that's, you know, that's not really a habit, but that's like my own insights, like that are wisdom, that that's something that I've come to believe that my purpose in life is very much aligned with the concept of empowering other people, serving other people. All other things are just mechanisms by which I get to that space. <laughs> awesome. Great. Okay, Balaram, we will feature your second question another time. Jeff, I don't want to make you late. Um, Henry? Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. This wouldn't be possible without you. Um, yeah. So next time uh, I'll tag along the plan act reflect cycle and the idea of um, smallest viable audience <laughs> that, that Seth likes to talk about. I think you, you live that mission every single day, right? The way that you focus and the way that you try to help others one at a time. And I think we can do that too in the learning code. Okay. With our powers combined. <laughs> you meeting I, yeah. Patrick now or no? Patrick, yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna chat. Yeah, you can, you can double check, but I remember in the, that, that quarter, I remember- I, tr I for sure I trust you. I think that's true. <laughs> yeah. yeah. He even, he even handed out pamphlets um, of, uh, I think, the academic integrity pamphlets <laughs> to everyone. Little, like, brochure things. <laughs> okay. Okay, go do it, Jeff. So, to be continued. I look forward. We'll check in next week. I have some stuff that I, at some point I'd love to, uh, I'll be texting you to kind of check in about items. All right. Good luck. Thanks, Jeff. Bye. Bye. Bye.